Good morning. Today's reading is from Mark 4, 35 to 41. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Natalie, for reading God's word to us. Okay, so a quick show of hands. How many of you would describe your life right now as stormy? Okay, let me just ask that question again. How many of you would describe your life right now as stormy? Okay, same hands. For those of you who didn't put up your hands, just wait. And I don't say that to worry you. I don't say that to scare you. I, I say that because, well, to state the obvious, life can be incredibly stormy. And I think that's what our passage is showing us this morning. We're going to see Jesus and his disciples in a storm. And the question that I'd like to explore with you is how, how do we not only weather the storms of life, but how do we actually weather them well? How do we do that? How do we weather the storms of life well? And I think it's helpful to know something about the storm. It's, it's helpful to know something about the perfect storm. I think if we're going to really weather and navigate well, I think we have to know something about the storms and the perfect storm. And I, there are a couple of things I want us to see. One, that the perfect storm is perfect because of its shape. Perfect. In terms of its shape, it's also perfect in terms of what it's designed to show us. So its shape and what it's designed to show us first. Perfect in terms of its shape. Now, I want you to think of a storm that you've been in, in your life, maybe in the distant past, maybe in the recent now. Just think of a storm that you've been through. What was it like? I want you to think about all of the components that went into that storm. All of the things that were working together, combining together to produce that one big storm. Okay? That's the kind of storm we're looking at here this morning. That's what I mean by the shape. The storm that we're looking at here in our passage with Jesus and the disciples was a perfect storm. It was a perfect storm. Everything working together to create this one big, massive storm. I mean, everything that could go wrong went wrong. It was perfect. Perfect. Let me just show you what I mean by that. It was perfect in several ways. It was perfect in, t- in terms of its, its timing. 
Okay, it's late in the day. Jesus has been teaching all day long, and it's now dark. We know it's dark. There's no moonlight because a, a storm is brewing. And so it is dark. It's pitch dark. It's inky dark. And rather than say to his men, let's just get something to eat. Let's get a place to sleep. He says, let's go across to the other side of the lake. And you can almost hear a collective groan. It's like, oh, man, I just want to eat and get some sleep. And Jesus is like, let's go to the other side of the, of the Sea of Galilee. It's already late. We're all tired. Jesus is tired. We know that. Because it said that he showed up in the boat just as he was. What's that? Tired. And so it's perfect. The timing is perfect. Late in the day, it's dark, everyone's tired. Not just the timing is perfect, but the location is perfect. It's perfect. Where are they? They're on the Sea of Galilee. It's actually not really a sea. It's more of a lake. It's about 21 kilometers long by 13 kilometers wide. And we're going to assume that Jesus and the disciples did not hug the shoreline. We're going to assume that they, they chose the most direct route. Now, the Sea of Galilee at its deepest point is 45 meters. I know this. I checked out the topography of it. You're welcome. And so it's about 45 meters deep at the bottom. And so let's assume that they weren't in the middle, that they were probably just off the shore. But even that, they're still 20 to 30 meters deep. It's not super deep, but it's deep enough. It's deep enough where they just can't walk back to shore. And it's, it's, it's water. How many of you are crazy about water? Deep water. When I was 10, I, I learned how to walk, well, I started to water ski. I, I didn't actually start. I just simply water skied. I'll put it that way. And, um, you know, I did, I don't know how I actually got up with my spindly arms, but I did. I got up and I'm in the middle of the lake. And of course I wipe out and I did something. I don't know why I did it, but I put my head in the water and looked down and I could see the reeds coming up from the bottom, like green arms reaching up to grab my legs and pull me down to my death. And I freaked. We're not aquatic creatures. We're land animals. We're terra firma people. And, you know, water can be a scary place. This is perfect. The location is perfect, but so are the travel plans. I mean, they're in a boat. Jesus could have said, let's walk along the land and to the other side. But he says, no, let's take a boat. So all 13 of them are in this boat. Now, we don't know for sure what kind of boat they were in. However, did you know that in 1986, there was a drought on the Sea of Galilee? And the waters receded, and two men, brothers, found a boat, and they carbon dated it back to roughly 100 BC, 100 AD, right in this zone. And the, and the dimensions of the boat were these. The, uh, the boat was eight meters long, just two meters wide, and about one meter tall. And they call it the Jesus boat. 
Not because we know for sure that Jesus was in the boat, but this was the kind of boat that Jesus would have been in. And they reckon that it could seat up to 15 people. And so here they are, all 13 of them packed in like sardines. And this, this, this is, this is not great. It's not great because if this boat goes down, there goes the church, there go the disciples, there goes Jesus, and everything's over. Like, this is not a good idea. This is a bad idea. It's perfect. It's perfect. The travel plans are perfect, but so is the weather. The weather is perfect. We're told that a furious storm arises, and it's a, it's a furious squall. And it comes into them, and you know, I actually looked at the Greek on this, the original language that the New Testament was written in, and it says that it was a megastorm. A megastorm. Like everything coming together, and it creates a megastorm. The Sea of Galilee is not known for megastorms. It has storms, because it has mountains or hills surrounding it, and the cool air comes over the top and drops and meets the warm air of the sea. And you get like these mini storms. The waves only get to about like 30 centimeters. A storm like this is very rare. The last storm that was of any significance was back in 1992, where the waves reached about 10 meters. So this is rare. It's perfect. Everything is perfect. Everything is perfect. The timing is perfect. It's night. It's dark. The disciples are just wiped out. The location is perfect. The Sea of Galilee. Their travel plans are perfect. They're in a boat. The weather is perfect. It's, it's a mega storm. And all of these things come together in one big shape. I don't think that we're, I don't think we're very good at storms. I don't think we're very good in these moments. I know that as a culture, we're especially not good at this. I think it's very possible that we may be the worst generation or the the worst culture that has ever existed in history when it comes to dealing with the storms of life. And I think there are a couple of simultaneous reasons or factors for that. One is that we have increasingly become a secular culture, which is to say that we have pushed God to the side. Simultaneous to that, we have seen this amazing explosion of technological advancement, which insulates us from the harshness of life. However, the storms still come. And no matter how hard we try... We cannot protect ourselves against these storms from coming to us. And the thing that we do when it comes to these storms is that we can be so blinded by the circumstances of the storm. All we see are the circumstances. And we lose sight of, I think, what is the bigger picture of what's going on. You know what I'm saying? We focus on the conflict-ridden relationships. We focus on loss of opportunities, loss of health, loss of... We focus on the blessings of life, which can be a storm. 
And I don't want to sound cavalier. I don't want to stand up here and sound cavalier this morning. Please don't hear that. All I'm saying is that we tend to focus on the elements, on the characteristics of the storm, and we lose sight of what's really going on here, the, the, the big picture. And in these moments, the storms don't seem to have much of a shape. You know what I'm saying? They, they seem chaotic. They are jumbled. They are disorganized. They are, they're messy. But are they? But are they? I, I chose the word shape very intentionally, and I looked up a definition of shape. And a shape is um, something that is uh, an external form, con- um, contours and outline of someone or something. Like a shape has a, like a, a shape to it. It's not chaotic. It's not random. It may feel like that. It may look like that to us. And I think it looked like that to the disciples in our story. I mean, nothing was going right. Everything's out of control. There's no shape to it, or so they felt. And so we think as well. But if we look really carefully at the storm that is in our passage this morning, and I think we're being invited to, I think we'll see that it has a distinct shape to it. Like, it's perfect. It's too perfect. It's, it's ridiculously perfect. It's suspiciously perfect. And I think that if we look at it long enough, we're going to begin to see the hand of God architecting, designing, allowing sovereignly at work, allowing everything to come together at one moment in a perfect storm. Yes, it's like the audio stereogram. You know those things? It's like a, you look at a piece of paper, it's an image, it's uh, two-dimensional, but you look at it for a while, and suddenly a three-dimensional image emerges. You know the thing I'm talking about? Hmm. Go home and Google auto stereogram. It's that, you know what I'm talking about? It's real. It's a thing. Okay, it's a thing. But here's what I think. We look at our conflicts. We look, we look at the storms that come our way and they just feel like squiggles and dots and chaotic. But if you stare at them closely enough, you begin to see that there is a shape. And you begin to see that there is a sovereign hand guiding all things. And more than that, that there's a sovereign God controlling and moving everything together into this perfect storm, and it is deeply personal. It comes from the hand of a personal God to you personally. Like none of the storms that we go through are the same as others. Every single storm is unique. All storms are tailor-made to who you are. And I don't fully understand that, And I don't understand why you get that storm and I get this storm. But we can believe that God is sovereign and he is personal. And somehow, some way, the storms that come to us, like they did for the disciples, was uniquely designed, personally designed, 
to do something. What? Second point. The storms of life and the perfect storms are not only perfect in terms of their shape, they're actually perfect in terms of of what they're designed to show us. And they're designed to show us a couple of things. And I think this is borne out in our passage here this morning. And I'm just going to walk through the text and show you. First, they're designed to show us what's in our hearts. What's in our hearts. So the disciples are terrified. They believe they're going to drown. I don't know what they're doing. They're probably bailing out the water as fast as, as they can. But, but they know it's all in vain. They know they're going down. They're freaked out. They're worried. They think they're going to die. And meanwhile, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? He's at the back of the boat. He's on a cushion. He's passed out. He's fast asleep. He doesn't hear anything. Not the wind. Not the waves slapping up against the hull of the boat. He doesn't hear the disciples freaking out and arguing. He sleeps right through it. And then they go to him, finally, finally. And they wake him up and they say, Master, don't you care that we are going to drown? And then he stands up. And he, he speaks to the storm. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And they stop immediately. Which is crazy. Because when the wind dies down, often the waves rage for a while. But here in our story, he rebukes the wind and the waves stop on the spot. Incredible. Now the disciples are freaking out. Because up to this point, they've been learning about Jesus, but they don't really get Jesus. They don't really understand who he is. I mean, they've seen some crazy miracles. But this is on another level altogether, right? It's another level. Because they know the word of God. And they know that the only one who can order and rebuke the wind and the waves is God himself. Job 38, verse 11. God says to the waves, This far you may come, but no further. And here shall your proud waves stop. And now, they're freaking out. Why? Because this Jesus, the one who was resting, now rests the storm. And the one who was still, has stilled the storm, and the one who was calm, has calmed the storm. And they see a man, but they know that God is in the boat. And now, for the first time, they are beginning to see who Jesus is. No mere man. The God-man. The God-man in the boat with them. And they freak out. And Jesus not only rebukes the wind and the waves, he actually rebukes them and says, Why were you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You know, I think we have to be careful when it comes to Jesus' tone. We don't know his tone. But we do know his heart. And whatever Jesus is getting at, we know this, that it's only for good. 
But I, I think the question that he asked is a very good question. Like, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? It's, a, it's, a, it's an exposing question. It's a penetrating question. It's a question I think we have to ask ourselves. So ask yourself the question. You're in a storm. You've been in a storm. You're going to be in a storm. Why are you so afraid? And I think there's something reasonable about their fear. Come on, I'm not saying that they're not, there's no good reason for their fear. I mean, we're built to respond to trauma in certain ways, sure. But Jesus is going deeper, and he wants to go deeper. Why are you so afraid? What's the answer? Chances are you've got to go deeper, and so go deeper. Why that? Why are you so afraid of that? And why are you so afraid of that? And why are you so afraid of that? And if you keep going down deep enough, what you'll find is that probably what you're really afraid of is losing your reputation, losing your safety, losing your peace, losing approval. And that these things have kind of become functional gods to you. And Jesus here is calling them out. He's calling them to the surface. He's summoning them. Not because he wants to put them in your face and go see. But he he wants to do some work on your heart. There are so many things in our heart that are good and bad and broken. and, And he just uses the storm to surface them. And so, yeah, what am I afraid of? What am I so afraid of? Because when you have wrong fear, it's because of wrong faith. You've put your faith in something that's not God. Okay? What is it? And God wants to show us those things, not again so he can put them in our face, but because he wants to move us to a different place and to see him. Now look at what he does on this boat. The disciples finally are seeing Jesus for who he is. They're finally seeing him correctly or beginning to. And everything begins to change at that point. And you see, here's what I think God wants to do in those perfect storms of your life. Not only show you what's in your heart, but show you what's in your heart so that he can replace it and replace it with himself. All the things that you are afraid of losing. He wants to become the thing that you will never, never lose. And we know that his heart is oriented this way because years later, from this moment in our story, Jesus Christ would go into another storm. Another perfect storm. The perfect storm of all storms where everything came together, everything was combined together into one big megastorm. And a storm where evil men put him on a cross and where God the Father put your sin onto him and where he bored away by absorbing God's wrath in your place so that you could be forgiven and set free and have relationship with God. The perfect storm. He gets it. And I think that matters. 
when it comes to how we see the storms of life and what they're designed to show us and how they're designed to show us Jesus Christ in ways we have never seen before. Practically, I think it means two or three things, and I'll end. One, I think the storms are designed to help us to see Jesus correctly. So often, so often when the storms come, we misinterpret things. We just see data points and we assume that God is not out to help us. He doesn't care about us. But the cross of Jesus Christ actually argues against that. Listen, if Jesus Christ went to all the trouble of going into that perfect storm for you, tell me, how is it possible that he doesn't care about you where you are. I think the cross, and I think the perfect storm of Christ, it allows us to really look at our circumstances and to interpret them correctly. Not as judgment, not as ways of God destroying you, not as things where he's out to get you and make your life miserable, but where he is actually desiring not only to show you what's in your hearts, but to draw near to you and show you who he is. So that you and I can become more passionate worshipers of who he is. I think it does another thing. Not only does it help us to show correctly who Jesus is, it helps us to put our faith firmly in who Jesus actually is. Here's what I mean. When Jesus said to his disciples, how is it that you still have no faith? It sounds harsh. It sounds dismissive. I don't see it that way. I think he's calling out faith. I think he's saying, men, what do you believe? What have you believed? I'm calling it out. Put it into action. These storms are an opportunity for you and I to put into practice the faith that's in our hearts already. What do you know to be true about your God? I think it does something else. It shows us not only how we need to think about Jesus rightly and how we need to believe in him firmly, but I think it also shows us how we need to be together as a community. I'm very much struck by the fact that these men were not on their own by themselves. They were together. They were all in the same boat together. And so are we. When the storms of life come your way, you do not want to isolate yourself from the body. The body is the place that God has chosen to encourage your heart and to help you see what's up and to help you to see who God is in the storm. It's hard to do that alone. Don't be alone. We're in this boat together. Let's be in this boat together. And let's remember that we're not alone. And so we draw near to each other. And we ask each other good questions. How are you doing? What's hard? How can I pray for you? And did you know that the God's word says this? And we remember together that we're not alone. We're with each other. And most importantly, that Jesus is with us in that boat.
And he'll always be with us in that boat. Because he'll never leave us or forsake us. Because he came for us. And so, the storms are going to come. A megastorm is on its way. I'm not trying to scare you. This passage is here to prepare you and me to understand that there's always a shape to these storms. God is sovereign. And God wants to show us something in these storms. What's in your heart? The good, the bad, the ugly. And he wants, he wants us to see him. He wants us to know that he is God. God with us, Emmanuel. I hope and pray that when that storm comes, that these lessons will come to your mind and that you're not just weather the storm, but weather it well. That's my hope and prayer, which I'm going to pray for right now. Okay, let's pray. Father, it's absolutely true that when the storms come our way, that they come because you have something to show us about yourself and an aspect of who you are. You want our eyes to be open more widely. You want us to be freed more deeply. And so free us, Father. Show us what's in our hearts, all that's good, but also, Father, all that has sabotaged our hearts, hijacked our hearts, all that continues to enslave us, which is evident by the fears that we express in moments of storm. And Father, move towards us with your grace and help us to move towards one another with life-giving, storm-enduring faith and encouragement. And Father, may we as a church own our storms together, not think of them as private things, but, Father, as things that you allow to come to our community and, and therefore ways that we can bring comfort to one another. For this, Father, we'll need your grace. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.